0: The passage for today is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. You can open up your Bibles or you can read from the handout as well. The Apostle Paul writes, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Please remain standing for the offering. So if you aren't already there,
1: please open up to Philippians three, ten through 16. Or have your handout ready right there in front of you. So I hope you all had a great New Year's Eve last night. I will know which one of you, or which ones of you, have stayed up to see the ball drop, depending on how droopy your eyes look in the middle of my sermon. I'll be able to look out and tell. And I'll also know which one of you have tried to counteract that by drinking a bunch of coffee, because I'll be able to look out and see how jittery you are as well. Um, So... Also, if you're thinking you can multitask during the sermon and plan your your list of things to do for the new year, or if you're thinking you can start your resolutions now, I would say, don't do it. (laughs) Wait until you get home. Wait until after the sermon. Because what God has to say to us this morning through his word is so relevant to New Year's, and it's so foundational to everything else we do in our lives, that it will possibly force you to rethink your New Year's resolutions. And my prayer is that it will jar us and take us out of our comfort zone and cause us to set even higher goals and make even um, more just ridiculous priorities to put Christ first in our life. So let's listen to, to what God has to say to us this morning. We looked uh, two weeks ago when I was preaching through Philippians at verses 4 through 9. And if you were here, hopefully you can recall and remember with me that in verses 4 through 9... Paul, who is the writer of Philippians, he was writing to the church at that time, he was most concerned with one thing, and that was his righteousness. We we looked at that at the very end. The righteousness of him standing before God on the last day, the day of judgment. We saw that Paul was his entire life passionate about being right with God. But we saw that originally he was going about it in the completely wrong way. He went about it, First, originally by, well, being a religious. He said, maybe if I follow the rules, maybe if I go to church, maybe if I tuck my shirt in, maybe that is, what is going to be what pleases God. But we see that when Paul realized that, eventually, no matter how good he was, he could not live up to God's perfect and holy law. And once he realized that, and once he realized that only Jesus lived up to that standard... His entire focus changed. His entire life changed. When Paul realized that Jesus chose to die on the cross as a substitute for him. In return, Jesus giving Paul his righteousness and his purity. And Jesus giving Paul his sinless perfection in a relationship with the Father. Then Paul said, wow. Everything that I've ever done in my life up to this point. Everything that I've done to be right with God. It's garbage. It's garbage. It's worthless. And now Paul, after realizing that it's only through Jesus that he could go to the Father, he said, I'm going to devote the waking moment of my life, the rest of my entire life, to know God and to know him through Christ. Because that is the only way of finding perfection. Not by my own way or not by my own law keeping. So Paul says, Jesus sacrificed everything for me. So I will count everything I had gained as a loss for the sake of knowing him. He puts aside his whole past life. All of his credentials, he throws them away. Because he says, Jesus is infinitely better. So that's where we left off last time. So now, we move on to the next section of Scripture. So we see that, okay, now that Paul is saved, now that Paul understands that Jesus is his righteousness, that it's only through Christ that he can be saved, now what do we do? So now we're at a point where Paul's saying, okay, to the Philippian church, now that you're saved, now what must you do from here? So does Paul simply say to the church in Philippi, just say the sinner's prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, and go back to living the same way you're used to living. Go back to hanging out in the same crowds and just doing the same things. No, Paul does not say that. We do not see that here. Paul says, whatever used to give you your identity, lose it. It will just weigh you down. The work is not over now that you're saved. The, work, the hard work has just begun, let me tell you. Paul says, follow me in running hard toward the finish line. Follow me in dying to your old selves and pursuing Christ wholeheartedly. So this morning, I'd like us to see three things from this passage in Philippians. First, what is the prize? What is the prize Paul saw and what is the prize that we must see? Second, why must we go hard after this prize? Why must we run so fast after this prize? And third, how do we pursue this prize? So first, what is the prize? Second, why do we even want to chase after it? And third, how do we pursue this prize with all of our hearts for this year in 2012 and hopefully for the rest of our lives? So first, what is the prize? So let me ask you a personal question. Think about this hard. What is the one thing that you are willing to work for above all else. The thing that you are willing to sacrifice everything for. For Paul, he says in verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we see in verse 14 that the prize for Paul, and hopefully for us, is for God to call us upward to be with him in Christ Jesus. That is Paul's goal. He wanted nothing more, like I said earlier, than to be in heaven for eternity in a perfect relationship with God. No sin, no guilt, no shame. Just pure joy, pure rest, and pure love in the presence of God for all eternity. That is what God wanted. That is what Paul wanted from God. And this is actually the same prize that everyone in the world right now this moment is chasing after. You may say, Kurt, but that doesn't make sense. What about the billions of people who aren't Christians? I doubt that their prize is heaven. I doubt that they even care about God, let alone wanting to stand in his presence and have rest in him. So I would agree with you that in the sense of heaven as we know biblically, as we understand heaven, you're right. People, nobody, Not everyone in the world does desire that. But if we think a little bit deeper and look below the surface... Everybody in the world, no matter what country you live in, no matter what religion you practice, everyone in the world is striving after and pursuing the prize of heaven. Everyone wants that comfort. Everyone wants love. Everyone wants rest. And everyone wants that joy. Everyone wants a version of heaven. But the question is where are they finding it? Where are you finding it? Where are we finding our heaven this morning? Do I find my comfort in my savings account? Do I find my love in my girlfriend? Do I find my rest in my television? Do I find my joy in what my friends think of me? Or do I have a different prize? Am I spending my time and energy to pursue the one thing that counts? The one thing that matters in this life, namely Jesus Christ. So a quote that really brought this to light in my life and that really jarred me was a quote from um, a pastor named John Piper in a book called God is the Gospel. So listen closely to what uh, Pastor John Piper has to say. He says, The critical question for our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven, with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, with all the food you ever liked, all the leisurely activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Think about that quote long and hard. Thank you, sister. (laughs) Think about that quote long and hard. Ask yourself that question every day. Would I be perfectly happy in heaven if all my best friends were there And I got to live forever playing my favorite games, eating the best food, my body being in perfect shape. If I could have all of that without Christ there, would I be satisfied? And I'll be honest, for 18 years of my life, the answer would have been yes. Because what thrilled me, what got me up in the morning, what brought me the most joy and excitement in my life was playing sports, eating great food, and listening to great music. All of that. I would have been perfectly content with eternity without Christ. In my selfishness and in my pride, I thought, if I could have all that, who needs God? Be honest with yourself. Is that your mindset this morning? Really look deep in your heart. Does your image of heaven include Christ in it? When you think about my my place of rest, my place of joy, does it include Christ? Do you see Christ there with you? Or do you see you there with, with a fountain of chocolate? <laughs> do, you see you, do you see this, this version of heaven, <laughs> you and all your best friends around? Or does it include Christ? Because if it doesn't include Christ, then let me be honest with you this morning, you've been building your entire life upon a lie. Because the truth is that Jesus Christ is alive, and in heaven, and reigning as king forever. And he's not the impersonal king that just sits in his castle far away But he knows each one of you personally. The Bible says that he knows the number of hairs that are even on your head. Jesus will be in heaven, and there won't be, and he won't just be there, just ruling everything, making sure everyone plays nice. While we go and do what we really want to do, like meet our favorite sports hero, or, like I said, drink from a fountain of chocolate. He's not there to just make sure it all runs smoothly, and we get to do what we want. No, that is not the picture of heaven we see in scripture. We see that Jesus himself is our joy. Jesus himself is the prize, and he is the focus. He is, he is the glory of heaven. We get this picture in Revelation 5, 11 through 14. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for us so that we can get a glimpse of what heaven will be like. So from Revelation chapter 5, 11 through 14, it says, and this is John speaking, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders... And the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying altogether, To him Who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the picture of heaven we get in Scripture. So we see in this passage, Jesus is the Lamb, who is so glorious that every person, every animal, every fish cannot help but shout out with the most joy and praise and excitement that you've ever heard. That is the picture of heaven we get. And if that sounds foreign to you, if that sounds weird, kind of strange, not something that you understand in your daily experience, think about this. Have you ever been to a big football game? And right before the game, you're sitting in your seat, and you look out, and all the fans are on the edge of their seat in eager anticipation for their favorite team to run out of the tunnel. And you look out and you see a sea of people dressed in the same colors as you with the little number one fingers in their hand. And all of them are just sitting in eager anticipation ready to shout out for their favorite team. And when the team comes out, everyone cheers and everyone roars and the whole stadium comes alive. And you can feel the electricity. Now there's something spiritual and something supernatural about that experience if you've ever been there, if you've ever felt something like that. Now, if you take that experience, if you think about that, like 10,000 people cheering for the same team that is awesome, multiply that times a trillion. Multiply that times a mil- so much. And, and the, all the people who have ever lived since the beginning of the world, imagine that. Not just 10,000 people in a stadium, but everyone who has ever lived since the beginning of time who has ever known Christ, imagine that many people all being together in the same place. Not just cheering because their favorite team is carrying a piece of leather across a white line. No. All the Christians who have ever lived together, trillions of people who knows not just what it is to win a a silly game, but people who know what it feels like to have all of their sins forgiven. People who know down in the depth of their heart what it means to be saved from an eternity of burning alive in conscious torment. Trillions of people together, knowing what it feels like to have their creator say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You may enter my rest. Can you, can you feel the gratitude towards Jesus saving them? Can you, can you picture the scene? So Jesus is the greatest prize. Because he is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He is. He is so much more important than anything we put our time or energy towards today in this world. He solved the greatest problem we face, and that is why he's the prize. He solved the problem of sin. The greatest problem in the world today isn't how do we ensure everyone gets freedom, the greatest problem in our world today isn't how do we alleviate suffering. Those are big problems, don't get me wrong, but those are not the greatest problems we see today. The greatest problem in the world right now is how can a morally perfect God who created everything be both just and loving? How can a morally perfect God, the Creator, be both just, have justice, and be both a loving God? That is the greatest problem. And Jesus answers that problem by living the perfect life without sin and die in a sinner's death in our place on the cross. That way, God can be both just, because he just doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't say, oh, um, that murder, that, that never happened. I'm not going to look at that. He, doesn't, he makes sure that no sin goes unpunished. When you were a kid, and your brother or sister hit you, weren't you furious if your parents never found out, or if your parents wouldn't ever punish your brother or sister? That would make me furious, because all of us have inside that the inner feeling of justice we all know that justice has to be served and god is the good father and god does punish sin he doesn't just let everything just he doesn't sweep it under the rug so god is perfectly just every sin is paid for either by jesus on the cross if you put your trust in him or if you don't put your trust in him the people who have sinned have to put have to wear that punishment themselves. And he sent his only son to the cross and raised him three days later so that we could have full forgiveness of that sin and eternal life with him. God was also not just perfectly just, but perfectly loving in understanding that all of us have sinned. None of us are perfect. All of us are guilty. All of us have broken his commandments. And so God isn't just just, because if he were only just, we would all get our just dessert, which is eternity in hell but he is also perfectly loving in that he sent a way out. He sent his son Jesus to take that place for us so that we wouldn't have to live in the condemnation, but we could have a way for eternal security in him so that we could be forgiven of our sin and it could be washed clean. So Jesus is the prize of heaven. Jesus is our prize because he solves the problem of sin. And he allows God to be both loving and just. He is the prize we are chasing after. And being like Jesus should be our end goal, shouldn't it? So now that we understand who the prize is, then with Jesus, obviously, why do we need to keep pursuing him? That's the question. You might be saying, Kurt, I understand Jesus is the prize. Why do I need to keep running hard after him if he's already saved me? If I already have him, why do I need to keep pursuing him? So three reasons that I'll... That I'll explain in this next um, section. The three reasons why we need to keep pursuing the prize, keep pursuing Christ. First, to want to know him more. Second reason why we should keep pursuing him, to confirm our salvation. And the third reason is because he has made us his own already. So the three reasons why we continue to pursue him is to know him more, to confirm our salvation, and three, Because he has made us his own. So the first reason we'll look at is found here in verse 10. Paul says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Now Paul realizes that he can know God through Christ. He wants to know Christ now in the power of resurrection above everything else. Because Paul his whole life wanted to know God. He wanted to be right with God. Now that he realizes, oh, God became a man, God became a person... The infinite became finite. I can actually understand and relate to God now. So Paul says, that's awesome. I want to put everything I have into to get to know this person so that I can know God. And we are the same in whatever we do as well. So the highest value for Paul was God. And we are the same in that whatever has the highest value in our lives, we will naturally want to know that thing more, right? For example... If you value your wife above everything else, if you value your wife, then you will naturally want to know her more and more, right? If she has the highest value in your life, it will come natural for you to study her, to want to get to know her better, to learn her likes and dislikes, to learn what she doesn't like, and and learn how you can please her, right? So if your wife has your highest value, it's just natural that you want to know her more. And that is something not bad at all. That's actually very good. God commands us as husbands to continue to pursue and know and study our wives. That's a very good thing. Or, another example, if your highest value is being a professional baseball player above everything else, you will want to know what makes them good, right? You want to, you'll naturally spend most of your time and energy trying to be like them, trying to know how do they get to this place, how do they make it so far, so if becoming a professional baseball player is your highest value, you you'll want to know more about it. You'll want to study it, and you want to spend time practicing and putting your energy into it. So with those two examples, we can kind of see that it's true that we always run hardest after what has the highest value in our lives. Now, as Christians, because we know that Christ's value surpasses everything else, it surpasses the best marriage, it surpasses winning the World Series. Because we know that Christ's value surpasses everything, the evidence that you have been truly saved, the evidence of that, is, are you pursuing Him above everything else? Are you making a point to know Him more and more? In Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 45, Jesus shows us a picture of a man who has actually seen him and made him his highest value. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding the pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The merchant sells everything he has joyfully for the pearl of great price. We must go hard after Christ... Not be, and because not to go hard after him, not to run with everything we have after him, not to, means that we don't want to know him. And to not want to know Christ is an insult to his value and a sign of spiritual deadness in us. But when you do go hard after Christ, the reward is your joy and his honor. So Paul anticipates that we would have that deadness. Paul anticipates that we would, we would grow cold. So Paul prays for us, and he prays for the church. He says in Ephesians three eighteen through... Chapter 3, 18 through 19, he says... "...that we may have the power to comprehend... that the church would have the power to comprehend... with all the saints, what is the breadth and length... and height and depth... and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge... That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We see here that there is so much of Christ that is yet to be known. There is so much depth to him. His wonders are inexhaustible. You think finite people are complex and interesting? You think celebrities are interesting? You think your wife's you think your wife is complex? You think you have a hard time understanding her? <laughs> Think about the infinite God. Think about how interesting He is. We will be spending the rest of eternity discovering new things about God. So why don't we start now? If you claim to be a Christian and say that Jesus is your pearl of great price, then you must go hard after Him. Or eventually just admit that there is something more valuable in your life. But please, do one or the other. Because the worst place to be is lukewarm. Jesus says in Revelation 3.16, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that verse, when I heard it for the first time, sent shivers down my spine. And I pray that we would all examine the fruit of our own lives and test and see if we are passionate about knowing Christ more and more, if he has the highest value in our lives. So the first reason why we need to continue to pursue the prize is to know Christ more. The second reason Why we continue to go hard after Christ is to confirm our justification or to confirm that we're saved. More simply put, we continue to run towards Christ to prove that we're truly saved. We see in chapter 2 of Philippians in verse 12, we see that Paul tells the church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say, okay, now that you've made a confession for Christ, you're, you're set for life. You're set. Don't don't worry about it anymore. You've made your confession. That's it. You're set. Although Paul, he doesn't say that. He says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." Although Paul believes, and we believe as a church, that you cannot lose your salvation. We believe that. But at the same time, he doesn't automatically tell them that. He doesn't say, "Oh, you're you're set. You can you can just you know you're saved. You made your decision now." He doesn't say that. Because he doesn't know if all the people's hearts who made the confession, he doesn't know if they're truly honest. And he doesn't know if their confessions are genuine. So he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we see Paul in another picture in the Bible, in Acts 13.43. Paul just got done preaching to a crowd of Jews. And after he preached his sermon, many of the new converts came up to him afterwards. And when the new converts came up to Paul, he didn't say, well, you're, you're set for life. No, he says to the new converts who came up to him, he says, I urge you to continue in the grace of God. Paul urged them, continue in the grace of God. He urged them to keep on living a life that is in line with the confession of faith that they professed. Jesus also says in Matthew twenty four thirteen, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, what is most important isn't the first day, but it's the last day, right? It isn't the day you made your confession, but it's the last day of your life. That is the most important day. What we don't want to be is the seeds that get choked out among the thorns, do we? We don't want to be those people. We want to be the fully mature rose that's in full bloom, that has gone up above the thorns, and that is in full maturity on the last day. That's who we want to be. People who are... That Christ, when He comes, finds us mature in Him. With a vibrant faith that is beautiful. So saving faith is not merely a one-time decision for Christ. Saving faith is an ongoing preference of Christ above all the other competing values. And now, I realize this isn't... This is not this is the ideal picture. I realize that all of our hearts are idol factories... We will always have competing desires, and oftentimes we will sin and give into them. So I'm not just talking about a one-time thing, because every day we have these competing desires, and all of us sin every day. We choose things above Christ. I'm not talking about the one-time decision here, or the one-time sin. I'm asking us, do you have a life that is characterized by you, time and time again, preferring Christ above everything else? It is not enough to intellectually believe that the Bible is true or cerebrally believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not enough. We know from James chapter 2 that even the demons know that. But the evidence of genuine faith in Christ as our treasure is our active pursuing him and choosing him above everything else. Therefore, we must go hard after Christ in 2012 to confirm our justification. Although there are countless more reasons why we need to pursue Christ with all our hearts, the third reason I have for us this morning comes from verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul says, I'm going to keep pressing because Christ has already made me his own. So we see that Paul cannot help but pursue Christ with everything he has, because Christ has already made Paul his own. Now, in the movies, anytime most of the time at least, in the movies, when you see someone save another person's life, what do they say? Most of the time they say, wow, I'm eternally grateful. Is there any way I could repay you, right? And then sometimes in the movie, they spend the rest of their life actually repaying that person or becoming their sidekick or actually doing something to pay that person back for saving their life. That's what we see. Now, if we just get a small glimpse, in the same way, if we get a small glimpse of how much Jesus had to go through physically and emotionally to save us and make us his own, and we just get a glimpse of how amazing it is to have a pure relationship with God, and we just get a small glimpse of how amazing heaven will be, then we cannot help but make Jesus our ultimate prize either, and feel the urge to pursue him for the rest of our lives. Now, let me get this straight. We can never possibly repay Jesus for what he did for us. We can't. It's too much. But he has extended his love to us at an infinite cost to himself. So the least we can do is love him above everything else in our lives. Paul says, I will press on in order to gain Christ. Because Christ already has gained me. And that destroys the false logic that says, if Christ has found us, We don't need to seek him anymore. It destroys that logic. So Paul's conversion, I want us to listen to this. Paul's conversion is not a cage to hold him back. But Paul's conversion was a catapult to push him into the pursuit of holiness. It's not a cage to hold him back. It was a catapult to pursue him into holiness. Into becoming a more mature in Christ. The irresistible grace of God coming into Paul's life and overcoming Paul's rebellion and his sin and in our lives as well. It didn't make Paul passive, did it? We see that it made Paul powerful. God's grace coming into our lives. It, d- it didn't make Paul passive, and it didn't make, but it made him powerful, and it should do the same for us. The best commentary on Philippians 3:12 that I just read is. Philippians 2, 12, 12 and 13 that I read earlier. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. Go hard after Christ, because Christ is at work in you. So the Bible says that our salvation depends on our pursuit of holiness. But that's not all it says. If, the Bible, if all the Bible said was, you always have to run hard after Christ to be saved. If that's all, if that's all it said, then we would either all give up, Because we couldn't do it. We would get burnt out. Or we would all be self-righteous legalists if all the Bible said was you have to always sprint after Christ in order to be saved. But thankfully, that's not all the Bible says. Philippians 2.12 thankfully is is immediately followed by Philippians 2.13 which says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see that We are not alone. We are not on our own to pursue God. But our pursuit of God is dependent on the sovereign work of him in our lives. We see that here in Philippians 3.12 that Paul, he's not pressing on to know Christ out of the fear that if he doesn't press hard enough he's going to go to hell. No, we see that Paul is pressing to know Christ out of the assurance and security of knowing that Jesus has already made him his own. And any desire he has to press on is a gift from God himself. The best illustration I can think of um, to help make this come alive for us is a tightrope walker. So, if a tightrope walker doesn't have a net below him, and if he doesn't have any straps on his waist, if he's just free walking across a gorge, across a little thin rope, He's going to walk, yes, if he's professional, with some confidence, but there's going to be that fear in the back of his mind that if I fall, I'm dead. Now, think of that, and also think of the tightrope walker who has the net below him, who is harnessed in, and so if he falls, he knows that he's just going to get caught anyway. Now, that tightrope walker walks with a lot more confidence in his step, doesn't he? That tightrope walker walks maybe a lot faster, with a lot more purpose, and The fear is gone because he knows he's not going to die. I've even seen a YouTube clip of a tightrope walker jumping and bouncing on the slack of the line in the middle of a gorge. It's crazy. But because he is strapped in, because he knows he isn't going to die, he has the desire and he has the drive to, to do even more things. He has the confidence of knowing that because he's safe, he can continue to press on even harder. And so that's the example that, that we see in Paul's life and that I hope we see in our lives. We don't press on after Christ out of fear, but out of the security that he has already done it for us. So to recap, there are thousands of ways to, or reasons to get fired up about Christ and, and going hard after him this new year. But the three we looked at today were first, because he has higher value than anything else, so we should want to know him more. Second, we need to confirm our justification. We need to Show and prove that we're saved. And third, we go hard after Christ because he has already made us his own. Now, at this point, you may be saying, okay, I understand who the prize is. I understand it's Jesus, and I'm motivated, and I'm motivated to to get to know Christ more this year. But, Kurt, I've, I've made some resolutions in my life, and they always seem to fizzle out. There have been some seasons in my life where I've been excited about God and living for Him, but they always seem to fail. Or maybe you're the person who is scared to make any real commitments or change or grow because it is safer to just continue in the same routine that you've been going in this past year. Maybe you're that person. If you haven't figured it out already, let me tell you that the reason your resolutions fail, the reason that our resolutions ever fail, is because we lack power. The reason your resolutions fail isn't because you didn't grit your teeth hard enough, but it's because you lack power. When we simply try to modify and change our behavior on our own willpower, it'll work for a week, it'll work for a month, but you will go back to the same person you always were. What we need is not modified behavior but a changed heart. Jesus did not come to make you a more successful, more moral person. He came to change your heart so that you would have the desire to be holy, so that you would actually have the power to quit bad habits and so that you would have the tenacity to kill sin in your life. Proverbs 4:23 says, "Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow all the springs of life. We see here the picture of the heart as the source, and from it flows the rest of your life. We see here that um, it's the heart that is the source of your life. Everything, the, the rest of your life, how you think, how you act, what your desires are, all of those things, they flow from your heart. They all originate from your heart because it is the center of your being. So where we get in trouble as Christians and where we get in trouble in setting resolutions is when we try to change all the things downstream, when we try to change our life without looking at the source, without examining our heart. When we say, I'm going to change for good this time, without considering the heart. When we simply try to modify behavior without going back to the source. And the truth of the matter is that we are all born ...with sinful, rebellious hearts. I don't care what Disney movies told you. (laughs) I don't care if they said, follow your heart. The Bible says that we are all born with sinful, rebellious hearts. Because our father Adam sinned, we have all inherited his sinful nature. God designed Adam and Eve, the first humans ever, to be in a perfect relationship with him. But right when Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God, they broke that relationship... And sin entered the world. Now, this thing called sin is so powerful that it not only affects our spiritual state and makes us enemies of God, but it also infects our bodies. That is why we see disease in the world and why we see sickness and why we die, because of sin. And because of the powerfully wicked effects of sin, it has also affected our planet. That is why we see earthquakes, tsunamis, and other natural disasters. And not only do we inherit this thing called sin from Adam, but we have willingly given into it ourselves. Every one of us have rebelled against God and broken his commandments. None of us have pure hearts toward God. In fact, apart from Christ, we hate God. We are his enemies. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the reason we struggle with bad habits, the reason we cannot keep our resolutions, the reason we grow cold in our passion for Christ over time, is because our heart is sick. This is something that we cannot fix ourselves. Willpower will not work. Gritting your teeth will not work. We need God to do surgery on us. That is what we all need. We need a new heart in order to please God with our new lives. And thankfully... The good news is that Jesus already took this first step for us on our behalf. He was the only man to ever live with a pure heart. He had a heart that only sought after God, that sought holiness. And because he loves us so much, he volunteered to be our organ donor. Because he loves us so much, he volunteered to give up his heart. He knew that our wicked hearts of sin would destroy us. So he volunteered to take our wicked heart on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might be the righteousness of God. God made Christ become sin on the cross so that we could have the righteousness of God. Christ became sin on the cross, and God utterly destroyed him. Physically, a Roman guard ran a spear through Jesus' side and punctured his heart sack, and blood and water spilled out of Christ. But more than that, Jesus' heart was already destroyed and already broken. Because when he called out to God the Father, the one he knew for all of eternity, when he called out to God the Father, the one who he drew all his strength, the one from whom he always could count on the one who he knew would always be there his daddy his father the one who he loved so much when he called out to him god turned his face away so christ's heart was already broken before the roman soldier punctured it jesus took the full punishment and the full wrath of god for our wicked hearts and he did this for you and he did this for me He did this so that you would not have to face God's wrath because of your sin. So that you and I could, in turn, have a new heart that does seek God, that does desire holiness. And because Jesus did not remain dead, but rose from the dead, defeating death, defeating that power of sin, we too have the same power to conquer sin and laugh in the face of death. We have that same power now. Because Jesus rose from the dead, giving us those who repent and trust in him, new hearts, we now have the power to make resolutions. We now have the power to break sinful habits. We now have the courage to set lofty goals. Because we know that now that Jesus is risen, God has sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, to work in us so that we would have not just the motivation, but the power, the engine the thing driving us to know and pursue Christ more this new year and for the rest of our lives. If you're here and you're new to this this message, or if if you're here and you've been walking with Christ faithfully for the past 50 years, it doesn't matter. God's message to us all is the same. Examine your heart. Repent of the sin that is holding you back from running hard after Christ. And like David in Psalm 51, let us all ask God daily, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. God, I would pray that you would renew all of our hearts this morning and make us all burn with a passion for your glory. May all of our hearts burn with that passion. I know that I've been talking a lot about just pursuing the prize of Christ this morning and becoming like him. I've encouraged us to go hard after Christ and run the race. And that's all well and good. But I know that I would be doing a massive disservice to us if I didn't explain how to do that now, what running this race actually looks like day to day. So I will, I'll close and, and do the remainder of the sermon talking about that. Assuming that you, up to this point you understand what the prize is or who he is, why you should desire him, and it's only with a new heart that you can actually pursue the prize, I will now talk about how you can press on like Paul to make it your own. And there are many ways to do this. Um, but I'll touch on three ways that Paul resolved to press on toward the goal of becoming like Christ. Um, so that we can learn from his great example. The first way is pretty obvious. It's spending time with Christ. That's the first way. The second is forgetting what lies behind. And the third is straining forward to what lies ahead. So there are many ways, but what we're going to look at is first Way of how this looks like day to day: spending time with Christ. Second, forgetting what lies behind, and third, straining forward to what lies ahead. So, spending time with Christ is connected directly to knowing Christ more, because it is obvious that you can't know someone better unless you spend time with them. Right? That's it's pretty obvious to us. So, in verse ten of Philippians three, Paul says that he wants to know Christ more in the power of His resurrection, and yes. Paul did meet the risen Christ. Once he met him once face to face and verbally heard Christ speak to him. But the primary way that we see Paul getting to know Christ better isn't through hearing the verbal voice of God in his ear. It's through reading the Scripture. It's through understanding who God is through the Old Testament that he had a lot of it memorized, and through understanding the words of Christ and what He said. Paul was extremely versed in the Old Testament, but we still see in 2 Timothy 4.13 that when Paul is in jail and his life is about to end, Paul asks for Timothy to bring his books, and above all, the parchments. And most commentators agree that the parchments that they're talking about would have most likely been the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Bible. So Paul understood that in order to know Christ more, he had to read the scriptures. Even in jail before he was about to die, the one thing he wanted most was to spend more time with the God he loved. And we know that Paul considers reading God's word on paper to be the exact same thing as hearing God speak directly to him. Because he says in the previous chapter in Second Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. We see this in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. So when Paul reads the Bible, and when we read scripture this morning, it is God himself speaking directly to us. What an amazing thing, isn't it? That the infinite creator who is outside of time would give us his words to know him. Stop for a second and marvel at that fact. Does that amaze you? Does that amaze you that God would speak to us and make the infinite become finite in words that we could know God? That, that, that is amazing. And the beauty of this word is that it is so simple that a child can understand it, but it is also so deep that you could spend the rest of your life studying it and barely scratch the surface on all the mysteries and profound truths that are in it. So the most practical and essential way that you can run hard after the prize of becoming like Christ in 2012 is by reading his word. I assure you that when you're on your deathbed, when you are on your deathbed, you will not say, I wish I had spent more time watching TV. You will never say, I wish I had worked more hours. But you will never regret the time you spent reading the Bible listening to God speak his life-giving words directly to you. You'll never regret that time. So have that wisdom and live that in the moment. A great quote that you've probably already heard, and it's so true, that if your Bible is falling apart, chances are your life isn't falling apart. If your Bible's falling apart, chances are your life isn't. If you have never tried to read the whole Bible, then maybe this would be a good year to start. If you need a Bible study or a good reading plan... Um, there's a million of them, but um, you can ask me about that after. Um, but the key is your motivation. Is it, I have to read the Bible, or I get to read the Bible? But at the same time, I'll admit that it's not always, it's not always just the most exciting thing. Sometimes I'll admit that it is kind of like brushing your teeth. You're not always going to be super excited about what you read, but you read anyway, asking God to help you understand Knowing that the daily discipline of reading will pay off in the long run. Just like brushing your teeth every day does pay off in the long run. Right, Brandon? (laughs) So set a goal for yourself this new year. If you start out small, that's fine. That's awesome. The important part is that we want to know Jesus more. And if you're experienced, if you're mature, try challenging yourself to read the whole Bible. Or even memorize portions of it. Let someone else know that you're actually doing this plan and ask them to hold you accountable. I found that is paramount in staying consistent. So the first reason of actually how to practically run, half, run hard after Christ is simply getting to know him through his word. It is God's speaking to us. The next way we can practically run hard is forgetting what lies behind. We see that in verse 13. We need to forget what lies behind so that we don't turn back to our old way of life and so that we don't keep feeling guilty about the things God has already forgiven us for. We see here in verse 13, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul knows that there is the temptation to go back to the same lifestyle he used to live in. So he is actively forgetting, choosing to forget what lies behind. Some of you are like that. You have lived a certain way. Some of you have lived a certain way for so long. And now that you've come to know Christ, you love him. And your deepest desire is to pursue him. But you are fighting against all those old habits you had formed over all those years. So Paul's word to you this morning, Paul's word to all of us, is keep fighting. Pick up the sword of God's word and let it renew your mind and reshape your thoughts. And God will help you. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So if you're fighting this morning, keep persevering. And God will be there to deliver you if you keep pursuing him. And others of us, you're trying to walk with Jesus. Maybe you're coming to church, possibly in a a small group. But in your heart, you miss your sin. You miss your old days and you miss your old ways. You look back. And maybe you, you even long back at your old life. And maybe you've even gone back. You're doing things that you shouldn't be doing, and you're believing things you shouldn't be believing, condoning things that you should be condemning. Your deepest desire is not Christ, but sin is. Is that you this morning? If so, Paul says forget what lies behind. It's not worth it. All it will ever do is lead to death and destruction. Tomorrow is not promised. So fix your mind on Christ today. See his work for you on the cross. Repent and put your trust in him. And forget the past. Ask God to renew your mind and take away that past desire to turn back and look around. We know what happened to Lot's wife. She physically turned to a pillar of salt when she looked back. God says, don't look back. Continue, fix your eyes on me and run forward. Another reason Paul forgets what lies behind is because he has to put away the guilt of his past life. Some of us struggle with that as well. You may have come to know Christ, and you, you know that he is completely forgiven of you of all your sin, but you still feel guilt for things that you have used to do. And the, your past life may haunt you. Paul definitely knows what you're going through, because Paul helped kill Christians. Do you think it was easy for him to live with himself, remembering how he helped Stephen get stoned to death? No, I'm I'm sure it wasn't easy. But Paul makes it a point to set his mind on Scripture, on the future, so that it would be washed clean and renewed by Christ. Paul knows that Jesus has taken his guilt upon his shoulders and on the cross so that he doesn't have to bear it himself anymore. Jesus has taken the punishment for us so that now those of us who are in Christ can live without any condemnation of your past life or uh, or um, past, because our past no longer defines us. Because Jesus has taken our guilt and condemnation upon himself once and for all, he defines us and not our past, not our sin. So Paul reminds us to forget what lies behind. He's not saying, don't learn from the past. Don't, um, don't just turn a blind eye to your past mistakes. Don't learn from it. But he's saying, don't let those mistakes restrain you and hold you back from running hard after Christ. But hand the sin and shame that weighs you down over to Jesus. He wants to take it from you, and He already has 2,000 years ago, so that you can this day run free toward Him. So forget what lies behind. The last final point of how we can practically run hard after Christ this new year is through striving toward Him. We've seen that we need to get to know Him deeper through His Word, we need to forget what lies behind. We also need to strain forward to what lies ahead in order to gain the prize. Paul uses the language of prize here in verse 14. Because the church at that time would have been very familiar with the Greek Olympics. They would have known the amount of discipline, the amount of hard work, the amount of time and effort it took those athletes to train for the competition. So Paul uses that analogy of an athlete pressing on toward the goal in relation to Christ. Because if an athlete puts so much time and energy into a silly game, where if they win, they just get a wreath or maybe even a a medal, then how much more should Christians be training, striving to become like Jesus and earn the eternal reward of heaven? And nothing really has changed today, has it? If you look at today's athletes, they're probably even training harder than they did back then. Can you tell me, does anyone remember, who won the Super Bowl in 1992? Exactly, the the Washington Redskins. See, nobody cares. (laughs) We we laugh, but we are often blinded by the present as well. In our current circumstances, we are blinded by those current circumstances, and we live for the day too often, and we forget living for eternity. We forget to live for what lies ahead. We forget to press on for eternity for what lies ahead. We need to daily evaluate, how is my relationship with Christ? What do I need to change? Am I living in light of eternity? Because when we start to meditate on how long eternity is, and how short life is, and how every single decision we make in this life impacts where we spend eternity, and what rewards we will have in eternity, we will start to live a lot differently, won't we? Paul says, I will not be blinded by the present, but instead I will take hold of the present and strain forward to what lies ahead, that is eternity in heaven. Are you straining forward too? Looking back at year 2011, did it go by fast? It went, it went by really fast for me. Did 2011 go by really fast for you? When you think about yourself now, are you any different than you were a year ago? Are you more like Christ this day than you were a year ago? Did you take hold of life and use it for what really matters in 2011? Or did you let life run you? These are all sobering questions to ask ourselves this New Year's Day. But the good news is that there is still time left. And the better news is that we don't have to change ourselves. But simply receive the grace and a new heart that God has extended to us as a gift. We don't know if Jesus is going to come in return in the next five seconds. But while there is still time left, we can choose to repent of sin, trust in Christ's finished work on the cross for us, and go hard after him in 2012 and for the rest of eternity. Relying on his finished work, not our own. So this morning, I would say... (laughs) Check your heart, examine it, and take hold of 2012. Live for eternity and continue to press on. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, Father God, I, I thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you for, Lord, just the sobering time of year that it is New Year's, God. That it is a chance for all of us to reflect on the previous year and make resolutions for the new year, God. May we not make worldly resolutions, God. Lord, we know that you care so much about our families. You care about our money. You care about our jobs. You don't want us to just be monks and and all live just in some mountain isolated, God. But in our lives, in our day-to-day, you want us to use them for your glory. You want us to run hard after you. God, may we never get lackadaisical, God. May we never be the couch potato Christians, God. But, Father, may we be like the tightrope walker that has the assurance and has the security of knowing that we can't fall. And may that cause us to run harder toward the prize. Father, help us live in light of eternity, God. And I pray that if you haven't changed our hearts yet, God, if there's some of us in this room that that haven't um, had a changed heart, God, I pray that you would do that supernatural work right now, God. And so that we wouldn't just fizzle out on our resolutions, God, but so that you would be the power and you would give us the energy and you would be the engine to drive us toward holiness and to drive us to make us new creatures in you, God. Thank you so much this morning, God, and um, I pray that we can worship you the rest of this year. In Jesus' name, amen.